From Blister, this is All Things Climbing. I'm Dave Alley. I spoke recently with UK-based climber Hazel Finlay. Hazel broke onto the scene a few years back with a string of extremely scary ascents of gear-protected routes, most notably an ascent of a hard sea cliff route in the UK called Once Upon a Time in the Southwest, which was featured in Real Rock 8 back in 2013. Since earning a reputation as one of the world's most talented climbers, particularly when it comes to climbing hard above dicey gear, she sent numerous 514s and racked up four free ascents of El Cap, including a recent tick of the South AWOL. She had some really interesting things to say about the style of climbing found in El Cap, the direction that climbing culture's headed, and how she manages the pressures of being filmed and photographed on the wall. We also discussed a thoughtful article she wrote this past summer for the British Mountaineering Council's website about conflicts within climbing sponsorships called Sweet Dreams, Why Do Big Brands Crave Climbers? Before we jump into that, this podcast is about climbing's community and culture. In order to support that community as best I can, I'm donating 100% of both my share and Blister's share of the proceeds from the show to the Access Fund and the American Safe Climbing Association. That means that every dollar that comes in once we've covered some basic production costs will go to those two organizations. Now here's Hazel. Well, yeah, thanks so much for uh, for agreeing to come on and, and talk to me. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for the invitation. Can you walk me through a little bit of what the process is like for you sort of resolving on on what your goals are and the routes that you want to work? Is that something that you sort of just work out internally and then and then go for? Or do you, you know, have a dialogue with, um, you know, the your sponsors or the, your other partners? Or what is the behind the curtain of that process? With me, the, the behind the curtain of that process is pretty haphazard. Okay. And, uh, Really, throughout my life, I've kind of followed my intuition a lot. And, you know, when opportunities come up, I'll strike them and I'll and I'll go for them. A lot of professional climbers, you know, they they have their goals planned out for the year and they tell their sponsors what they're planning to do. And their sponsors can be there to make the film and take photographs and however that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm really bad at planning. Um, (laughs) it's something that I'm still working on. Sure. Yeah. I imagine it's a real, um, maybe more art than science in some ways. When you were just mentioning, um, you know, coordinating with sponsors so they can be there to, to shoot or to film or what have you, does that add a, like a, a really challenging layer to some of these objectives or does that feel constraining ever or or not so much? Yeah, I, I think it does add um, a challenging layer and and it does feel constraining and it also puts a lot of pressure on your performance. Sure. Um, I tend to not put too much pressure on myself personally, mm. but as soon as there's a film crew and yeah. a budget, you know, like as soon yeah. as you say, yeah. okay, I need this much money and we need this much money to make a film and then if you don't um, succeed what's that film then going to look like that adds pressure, external pressures to you, which might not be very healthy or enjoyable or conducive to actually climbing well. So it definitely does add a bunch of layers. And, um, I've, I've probably shied away from filming projects the last few years, probably because of those layers. Um, but I'm, I'm starting to realize that those layers, uh, they do add a valuable challenge as well. You know, it's not just all bad. It's like there's something to be learned there yeah. Um, yeah. from those other challenging layers. Man, yeah, I've always, uh, I've always admired the, you know, the, I guess the, the smooth facade that's sort of presented with all that, considering how difficult I imagine that is in the reality. 
you know, both on the filmmakers yeah. and the climbers. Yeah, and I'd love to see more films that kind of reveal more of, of what goes into that process as well, because there is definitely, I think, the average climber is seeing an image of professional climber life and professional filming that's a lot more uh, airbrushed is maybe the word. Yes, that's a great word, yes. <laughs> Especially... Um, you know, it's and it's presented in to yeah. I guess to to launch off of your choice of word there, it's really presented in such a way that is is clearly primed to stuff all that stuff under the rug in a way. Like you see so many photos of people, a team, let's say a team of two climbing in a remote place, and then there's like the attendant article and the and the video of them on the crux pitch and so forth. But it's it's hard to remember that there's like oh, there were five people on that expedition just to get that shot and those you know, that drone footage and like all this other stuff. But, you know, in the moment you're meant to believe that you're, you're sort of voyeuristically looking in on just two people alone on a wall. And it's, uh, it yeah. must, it obviously must not be the case. Right. But no. And, and, and that's the interesting thing about filming these sort of remote or kind of more out there routes, because it really does change the feel of it. If you have 400 meters of fixed line above your head, <laughs> right. You know, because, you know, if something happens, if a rock hits you or you just don't not feeling it anymore, then you have your escape route. Mm -hmm. And so it, it does massively change the feel of the kind of more adventurous routes. Does that affect your or intrude on, you know, what it is that sort of drew you to climbing initially? Yeah, I, th I think they do. Uh, it does intrude for sure. Um but luckily, you know, the time that I've spent climbing with someone above my head filming is such a small percentage mm. of my climbing experience yeah. Um, yeah. That, that really it's just a small price to pay um, for being able to make climbing my career. Sure. Yeah. I'm definitely not trying to get you to dog on on the lifestyle of being a pro climber at all. I just wonder, um, you know, with the with the airbrushing that you were mentioned, you know, I'm sort of curious as to what those things are like what it is about what would you say are the the hardest things about a pro climber's life or or the demands that are placed on them or or what you find the expectations are yeah yeah i mean when the thing the thing is with when someone's hung ab above you on a rope i mean the reason i climb are for those like those moments of like total absorption in what i'm doing i think you know all of the other stuff of like being with your friends, being in these amazing places, mm. the movement, all of that, they're like the bonuses. But you could probably find them doing another sport. But the reason I love climbing so much is because you get those like total mo moments of absorption. And I've always managed to find those moments, even with someone hanging there next to me. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, as, as for the other stuff about kind of the hardest part about being a professional climber, I think... I think for me, the hardest parts are the, you know, the internal um, battles with regard to motivation. You know, why you want to do that route? Is it because you really want to do it for those intrinsic um, motivations? Or are you being pulled by stuff that's external to you, like sponsors, credibility, respect from your peers, those kind of things? And just balancing, you know, the what I want to do with the what I think I should do is kind of it's it's quite complicated i think for a professional climber yeah i think telling the difference between what you want to do for yourself and what you feel 
pushed towards it should be so obvious or so easy to distinguish between the two but for like universally it seems that for everybody that's a challenge in in you know whatever arena of your life and i wonder do you guys have or you in particular i suppose have a a method that you like to use for you know i guess separating the wheat from the chaff so to speak or or do you just sort of um have you know trust your intuition at this point yeah i mean i'm i'm one of those people that kind of probably analyzes myself too much um so you know i I do really think about uh, each kind of decision big decision i make in climbing so you know if i if i pick a new climbing goal i really kind of tear it apart and i ask myself why i want to do that route Mm. um and i think I kind of like to separate stuff I do for myself and stuff I do for my career. Um, and in later years, I've, I've really started only climbing things that I want to do for myself. But the documentation and the social media and and how I represent myself and, and all of the other jobs that come with being a prof- professional climber, the, those things I put into the for my career part. Yeah. Um, and I kind of try to keep the the two separate in my mind slightly. Yeah, it's a very wise wise way to go for it, I think. Um, well, I want to move on to asking you a little bit about um, you know your recent trip up the south, eh? So first of all, congratulations on that. That's an awesome, awesome ascent. Um, Thank you. I it's your third free route on El Cap, is that right? Uh, fourth. Fourth, including free rider. If you include uh, the free rider. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you had also done Golden Gate and the Mirror Wall. Is that right? Or Premier? Yeah. The, the free the free variation is called the Premier. Right. Version I did. Yeah. Um, did you? Is the was your climb on the South A or I guess in the free rider as well? Is it is it fairly similar to those other routes or do you find that? the each route is is so so different that you don't have this like carryover of knowledge and and wisdom about the way the rock climbs and so forth i was about to say you know i feel like it carries over and i'm improving but then you know sometimes (laughs) i've gone back to those same pitches and they felt just as hard as the first time so maybe maybe it's it's not quite so like much so much like that yeah in my in my sort of limited experience in that kind of environment i just always, always downplay in the time since the last time I was doing a wall, how difficult and demanding just the basics of life on a wall are. Totally. I think most climbers, well, I've observed this in myself, is that we have a a poor memory for negative experiences. Yes. Um, so I, I tend to sort of gloss over all of my experiences and, you know, I'll go back to some crags and I'll remember it as being like a two minute approach with like nice rock. The roots aren't scary. They're super friendly. And then you get there and it's like a, a two hour arduous yes. approach in the rocks chassis and there's mosquitoes. I know, which is sort of harmless, I think, when you're kind of sandbagging yourself in that way. But then it really kind of runs afoul of your close friendships when you tell people those things and you're like, yeah. oh, it's close to the road. It's ultra classic, <laughs> just amazing. And then they're like, man, that was an awful, awful day out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's happened for sure. Um, 
amongst climbers who are who are at your level where you guys are doing those types of route is do you feel like there's an understood like this is sort of what is required to consider to have it be considered a, a clean ascent or is there like a really murky area about you know replacing this head or you know the, this this fixed stopper or or what have you or is that just sort of like you kind of climb the route in the condition you find it in it is certainly a tricky one and a gray area, I think, because the Zodiac, the Zodiac's a really good route to uh, use as a an example because I know that when the Hoobers freed it, it had tons of fixed gear in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one of the reasons it didn't get freed for a long time was because a lot of that fixed gear was removed mm-hmm. and then, you know, slowly accumulated again. Um, and I think that... You know, this is this is stuff that's like only really talked about on LCAP to right. some extent. Yeah. You know, in other areas of the world where there's bigger walls, you just don't get this kind of traffic right. where stuff just like uh, disappears and then appears again. Um, but I think people are fairly relaxed about, you know, if you're doing some kind of 13D corner and you've got no gear in it, right. I think people are going to be fairly relaxed about you banging in a, a piton or a, a nut or something to make it safe and mm. then taking it out or not taking it out. I don't know. Yeah. I know that when we did the crux pitch on the premier, a bunch of people told us that we needed to take some pitons because... Uh, you can get nuts the whole way up. It's like a, it's a perfect corner with this tiny seam in the back. But when you're free climbing it, you're stemming so far out from the corner that the rope just lifts up the wires. Right. So you need like some pitons to keep the rope close into the crack so it doesn't mm-hmm. lift up. So we brought some pitons with us. Luckily, when we got there, there was already some there and we didn't have to add any. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm sure we got some wires stuck that we couldn't get out. Yeah. And, you know, things, when you're on the wall, especially when you have these time constraints, you definitely leave a few ethics at the door, sure. I think. Um, you know, stuff that you probably wouldn't do if this was like your local single pitch track project that you mm. wanted to be like super perfect right. ethically. And you also have to take into consideration that most of these routes are artificial because they, you know, they're not likely to have even gone free if it wasn't for the fact that a climbers had been smashing pegs into them or pitons for however many years. Right. Um, and then there's a bunch of fixed gear as well. So I don't know, as I get older, I'm like certainly way more relaxed about these things and just think whatever guys is climbing. Like as long as you're being challenged and you're being honest, right. then just get on with it. Right. And I, I think, I do think a lot of times that the community can, um, I really admire the climbing community a lot for its focus on ethics. And I think that that's a super important conversation, especially if we insist or continue to insist on being a group that sort of self regulates and resists this like top down management, you know, from, mm-hmm. from other organizations and so forth. But I think we, we do have a tendency to take ourselves a little too seriously sometimes with like, I don't know, you know, sometimes you see these conversations taking place on, online and it's like man you're lo- you're talking about somebody on El Cap who's like you know taking whippers onto copperheads i mean that's you're not going to go up there and <laughs> climb that into better style i mean that is like terrifying to begin with like let's just give them a break here totally yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you um do you have uh, more i guess specific stuff that you 
are geared towards on OCAP or like you mentioned at the beginning that you kind of just show up in Yosemite and, and find what feels good? Yeah. So, I mean, Saddle Day this year, I chose it because I had this finger injury and mm. I was a bit worried about what I could and couldn't do. So I chose something to do that was, didn't have too many crimps on it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think it's someday I'm going to have to get my, um, arson gear and, climb something hard on Alcap, you know, like try the nose or try magic mushroom or, mm. you know, something harder than the ones I've already done. But sure. the, the, the thing is, is uh, I've always kind of gravitated to stuff that's hard, but not too hard for yeah. me. Um, just because I really like rock climbing and I kind of like to do lots of different routes. You know, I, I could have spent the last five years of my life working on the nose right. or I could have done four different routes on LCAP, right. you know? So right. it's just one of those things where it's like, do I really want to devote that much time and energy to one route when I could go do different things or go somewhere else or, yeah. or whatever it is. And so then it comes back to that story of listening to your motivations and, yeah. and really trying to figure out what you're, you're most excited for. Is it the case that there's um, like the professional sphere and the sponsorship world and that sort of thing creates an, um, I guess, a disincentive to take on projects that have that kind of uncertainty? Like, uh, you know, Tommy Caldwell working on the Dawn Wall for, you know, year after year after year after year. I wonder if that's the sort of thing where, you know, climbers are a little more hesitant to take on those types of projects as opposed to maybe shooting for something that's still sort of inspirational, but can, is more likely to come home with a send at the end of the day or end of the season. It would kind of sadden me, I think, if, if, uh, professional climbers had that, Mm. you know, as a, as a moving factor for what they wanted to do. I think that would be kind of a sad thing, you know, like, Oh, I'm not go try that because I might fail. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me, climbing anything difficult or at your limit, there's always the chance you're going to fail. Sure. Um, so, but the thing is, you know, is like if you're um, a sponsored climber and you're sponsored for having done single pitch routes, you're likely to be, you know, at least a 514 climber. So, on paper, you'd think that going to do Golden Gate or Freerider or whatever it is, which is quite a big deal if you're mm. if you're a woman, you know, if you if you're a woman and you free any route on LCAP, it kind of puts you on the map a little bit in terms mm-hmm. of being a good climber. Yeah, you'd think that that would be like low hanging fruit, right? right? Like I can free, I can do like five fourteen C D sport routes. So this five, you know, Golden Gate Freerider like thirteen A. Right. So like surely I could just go do them. Right. So that's the thing is that I think a lot of these skills just aren't transferable. You know, like mm-hmm. the the five seven chimneys on the Salafe are gonna feel five thirteen and with no gear. Right. You know, if you have chimney right. Yeah, I mean there's certainly no shortage of stories of climbers being turned away by um the Hollow Flake, for example. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, the, and the monster's just awful. Like, oh my gosh, that must just, just be unreal. Yeah, like the, the the monster this time was my fourth time doing the monster, mm-hmm. and it was still probably I probably tried harder physically on the monster off with than I did on the head wall. Yeah. yeah, which is just crazy. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's extremely easy to believe, though. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, that's just, oh man, I, that's the sort of thing that I'm not, you know, there are few, most of the things that are even distantly related to climbing, I sort of like have this transfer of interest in where I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. But that sort of like genuinely hard off with thing just is not on that list. You know, I, I have this like transactional relationship with it, I guess, where I want to climb off with well enough to just do the routes that happen to contain those pitches. Yeah, but yeah. Not because you ever like, oh, I'm going to try to be cutting edge and put up the world's like first 514 off with. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, definitely. <laughs> that's not. how I feel about it. Yeah. As well. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that's a, that seems to be a somewhat universal consensus. If there's one thing the climbers can agree upon, it might be that. Apart from this freaks that actually like up it. Yeah. No. But it's like, do you, you know, I kind of want to pull them aside privately and be like, do you really, you know, like, yeah, do you yeah. really feel this way? Is that like, is that sincere? Yeah. So one of the things that I was most excited to talk to you about is, um, that article that you wrote on sponsorship and sugary drinks and climbing. Oh um, yeah. My first question for you on this is, you know, of all the things that are germane to climbing being in a sort of transitional moment, why that issue at this moment? Yeah, it was it was really just kind of um, an organic thing. I just I saw that Ashima was getting sponsored by Coke, mm-hmm. and uh, I do have some quite strong personal beliefs about uh, the food industry, uh, um, about you know kind of the wider problems, not within the climate community, but the the wider problems of the food industry and obesity and um our our conception of what it means to be healthy and what it means to eat well yes. i do have quite strong beliefs about that so yeah i uh i was immediately drawn to uh to the news that shima was going to mm. be sponsored by coke and then actually someone just as i wrote a facebook post about it kind of like a bit of a um, slightly controversial Facebook post, just kind of posing a question about mm-hmm. which it, which it compared uh, sh- sponsorship, um, Coke sponsorship to uh, cigarette sponsorship back in mm-hmm. the uh, 1950s <laughs> or whatever it was. And then and then uh, Alex Messenger from the BMC, the British Mountaineering Council, just said, "Hey, do you want to write a piece about this?" Yeah. And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds really fun. And I put so much work into it. It was, yeah. you know, I can write. I'm I'm kind of like an average writer. I can write, but I'm not especially talented and it doesn't come easy. Um, but then it became this hugely personal thing where I wanted it to be just right. And I, I honestly put so much time into it. I ran it by so many people. I did so much research. I I decided not to take the money for the piece because it felt like it would like dirty the whole process. You know, it became this really big thing for me. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really did like about that article and, you know, I, I, it doesn't surprise me to hear that the time that you put into it was was so extreme is the um, the candid voice that you use in the article is is something that I think is is not found frequently enough in um in the world in general, but, but certainly in, you know, in the world of outdoor sports, oftentimes where, you know, people find themselves sort of selling a more airbrush lifestyle, as, as you say. And did you receive any pushback from, from the article? Yeah. I mean, there was some negative commentary, but not a whole lot. That's um, 
yeah, most people's arguments were just, you know, of the nature of I don't care. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. Which is fine. You know, yeah, some people just don't care about this. They don't see this as an issue. Yeah. It seems like the kind of issue about which reasonable people can disagree. Right? Totally. Yeah. Um, and just slightly uninformed people. We certainly live in a bubble of, you know, like, I mean, how many obese friends do you have? Uh, yeah. I mean, not a ton. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You yeah. know, so we live in this bubble of like, sure, it's fine to drink Coke. Sure, mm-hmm. it's fine to promote drinking Coke. Um, because even if we are slightly less healthy than if we don't drink Coke, we're still not going to be obese because we exercise all the time and we eat other healthy stuff. Um, but unfortunately the wider world is, is, is not like that, you know? So it's just thinking about, um, the fact that actually now as climbers, our impact is larger than just the communities that we, we, we exist in. Part of the reason why your article has has the opportunity to be so insightful and so impactful is in part because climbing is so small. You know, I think it's it's a little bit harder to have that conversation about about sports like um, you know football or or baseball or or whatever, where the like the the horses sort of are already out of the stable. If that makes sense, like those are billion billion dollar industries in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but climbing is, is, seems to be in this like transitional moment where we get to have that conversation and we get to decide, you know, do, is this something that we, the community feel good about or, or do we not? Or, you know, like Coke is just sort of just now walking in this door and, um, you obviously are, you know, in a position where you get to sort of reach a a place of feeling at peace with the way that you are involved with your sponsors. But do you, do you feel similarly about, you know, the, the health of the relationship with the community at large and, and sponsorship money? Yeah, it's a tricky question. It's uh, again, it's it's one that's hard to answer because I myself are in um, I'm in my little bubble of climbers mm-hmm. who've been climbing for ten, twenty years, and um, you know, they all hold similar beliefs to, um as I do, and you know, I think things are really gonna only start to change when all of these people who are starting to climb in the gym now. Mm-hmm. are going to be the community, the new community, right. you know. So, like, I just I just do hope that we still have the chance to, to have the conversations we need to have so that we don't end up with our top 10 climbers in the world being sponsored by Oreos, McDonald's, Coke. Yeah. You know, I, I really hope that we can respond as a community with some pushback so that mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. But I mean, you already see that everyone's pretty much accepted Red Bull as um, right. one of one of climbing's biggest um, brands um, with the very little um, commentary about the ethics of that. I mean, no, no one talks about Red Bull as being as being yeah. a, a negative, um, you know, um, image in climbing. Um I think in a lot of ways, people don't even um, internalize the conflict. Like they don't even necessarily ask the question. And I think that that's maybe why I found your your piece so refreshing is because it's like, oh, well, guys, this is going on in front of your face. And, you know, and we seem to be totally content to not even consider this. Um, 
but yeah, I think that, you know, that this is like climbing seems to me to be in, in a, in a moment for better or for worse of this dramatic change, largely fueled by, you know, gym culture and the, you know, the rise in popularity of the sport. And I guess maybe a half dozen other, other major factors, but man, there's just so, there's so much at play and there just seems to be so much opportunity to really shape the future of the sport in a, you know, in a, in a pretty profound way. I do feel, find myself feeling very distant from, uh, the kind of co- competition climbing community. I, I really ha- don't have much idea of what's going on with that. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I hope that the sort of big voices in the competition community can can kind of help shape it in a positive way come the beginning of the Olympics because the, the voices of the big outdoor cl- climbers are not going to matter at all, I don't think. Yeah, that's interesting. Hazel, thank you so much for um, taking the time to answer my questions and be on the show. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I think a lot of the stuff that you've put out there in the media has been some of the most thoughtful and you know some of the most beneficial to the community. So um, it was really great talking to you. No, thank, thank you. They were good questions. Thanks for listening. Subscribe and check us out next week. We'll be back talking to Barbara Zongrel about her recent send of Magic Mushroom and El Cap. 